0: She had been writing a song about her mom. And so she sent me those lyrics, and I was able to tinker and put a little screw in here and put a syllable there. And it just fit really nicely with my melody and added to it quite a bit, too. So it was a true collaboration on the lyrics.
1: Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Sue Ennis is on the show. Sue is an internationally recognized songwriter. Best known for co-writing more than 70 songs with Ann and Nancy Wilson of the platinum-selling rock band Heart, Sue has more than 35 million records sold, including 10 Gold, 4 Platinum, 1 Triple Platinum, and 1 Quintuple Platinum album. Sue is also a member of the band The Lovemongers with Ann and Nancy Wilson, and recently co-wrote and performed on Nancy's first solo album, You and Me, which was released last Friday. When she's not writing or recording, Sue teaches songwriting workshops, and her craft of songwriting class sells out every quarter at Shoreline Community College. She also helped develop a songwriting interactive experience for the Experience Music Project with Paul Allen and is on the faculty at the Pacific Northwest Film Scoring Program, where she teaches songwriting for film. This is one of the more wide-ranging interviews I've done on the podcast, not only because she has such an amazing career, but also because I have a personal connection to Sue through my dad, who was Hart's tour pilot for many years. In this interview, Sue and I talk about how she met Anne and Nancy as a teenager, and how that friendship blossomed into a decades-long songwriting collaboration. We also talk about her adventures flying with my dad in Europe, and discuss the origin story of the lovemongers. And if you stick around until the end of the interview, you'll hear Sue give me some songwriting tips after I play her part of a song I wrote in high school more than 40 years ago, but never finished. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with the incredibly talented and multifaceted artist, Sue Ennis. Well, Sue, welcome to Dream Path Podcast.
0: Thank you. So fun to finally meet you and be with you after lots of missed places and lots of lots of schedule juggling. Here we are.
1: Yes. Thank you for making time. I know you're so busy with your teaching schedule. It's been a a couple of months since we first tried to connect. (laughs) And how's your sister doing, by the way?
0: Thanks for asking, Brian. Yeah, she's in, she's in really good shape. Yeah. Had a little bit of a of a scare there, but uh but everything went well and uh she's on the mend. So, thank you.
1: Yeah. Well, I first want to say congratulations on this solo album that you collaborated with Nancy on. It's called You and Me, Nancy Wilson's first solo album. Yes. Since starting her music career in the the late 60s, early 70s. So, yes, indeed. Yeah, I, I listened to What I Could. It's I don't think it's fully released yet that I could see.
0: No, I think it's Friday, so uh, it should soon be available.
1: Nice. I listened to What I Could. You and Me is the song that I really connected with for obvious reasons. Uh, you are featured on that track. What a touching song.
0: Oh, thank you. You know, I can tell you a little bit about how that song came to be. And, you know, I had no idea that, uh, you know, Nance would want it to be the title song for the record. But I think I had written a song a while back, you know, a year and a half or so. That was just a personal song for me, a little bit of a, of a disguised song about my mom and at about her death, but it had a lot of imagery and it was called Follow Me and I was going to keep her safe and I don't need to go into the first iteration, but I played it for Nance and she really loved the music and she said that she thought that the words really weren't for her, but that it's it was crazy that she actually had she had been writing a song about her mom. She had been Mm -hmm. really missing her mom. And so she sent me those lyrics, and I was able to tinker and you know, put a little screw in here and put a syllable there, and it just fit really nicely with my melody Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: added to it uh, quite a bit, too. So it was a true collaboration on the lyrics, and we both were of one, I was going to say mind, but really one heart, wanting to conjure up a scenario where we could... We could meet our moms again, and I don't mean in a, any kind of you know weird woo woo way, but rather that impulse that sometimes we have, you know, when our moms are are gone, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you're in a hard place or a lonely place or whatever it may be, and you think, if I could just call my mom right now, those ah. of us who were lucky enough to have. Right, wonderful relationships, you know? So in any case, that was something that uh, we both had experienced that if only I could just talk to her and we put sort of a, you know, a, a nicer spin on it. And, mm-hmm. and it was so cool to have Nance sing it. I mean, I was just, I was so thrilled that the song turned into something that she fully embraced and sang with so much sincerity, you know?
1: It's really nice to hear her voice. I know she sang on, uh, was it These Dreams? or dreams, yeah. Yeah, These Dreams back in the mid-80s and and had that turn into a number one hit and demonstrated that she has the chops for sure, but just hasn't been featured as a vocalist. So it was really <laughs> cool to hear this. That's album. what happens you know, when
0: you share a band with Ann Wilson.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not to be it's silly, true. but you know, I mean, she, she certainly, yeah. I right. mean, one of, I think, Rock's greatest voices, and I will say that as her friend and a fan and and then Nance uh, always had a few moments, a few sort of spotlights in the live show where she could sing whatever she wanted, you know, sh- and she often opted to sing covers. I think she she uh, sang Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's and an old Elton John tune that just really beautiful melody. And then uh, on the last tour, The Boxer. And, you know, so something a little more acoustic focused. And Yeah.
1: Um, With Sammy Hagar, right? Yeah, that's, That's an right. interesting collaboration there. I, I was not expecting to see his name.
0: You know, he's an old friend of a very longtime friend of Jeff, Jeff Bywater, Nance's husband. And so has of course, gotten to know him. And they have a really fun, playful relationship, you know, in Instagram. And they josh around. It's It's great. And I think she originally had a song that was a big, big rocker that was a contender for the record, And she sent it to Sammy and he said, you know, this is kind of the obvious move. You know, this is exactly what everyone would expect me to sing on this kind of hard rocking thing. What else do you have? And, you know, she said, well, the boxer and he said, oh, I love that song. And so that's Mm. how it came to be. They wanted to make a little bit of a of a surprise that you wouldn't imagine, you know.
1: I'm looking forward to hearing it on Friday. I wasn't able to find it online because it's not, not released out there yet. yet. Yeah. It's uh I, I was able just to listen to maybe two or three songs, just little teasers. Yeah. Um, but I listened to that Mark Marin interview with Nancy, by the way, that you posted on Twitter and learned a lot about Nancy. And also heard a little bit about how this solo album came to be. And it sounds like the isolation of the pandemic and the downtime of the pandemic allowed for Nancy to create this thing without the distraction of being on the road and all of those other pressures. Is that your understanding?
0: Oh, for sure. I'd say, you know, Nance Nance is my, you know, my true, truly my best friend. And, you know, it's been an amazing thing to have, you know, she was 12 when I met her and, you know, we just, we're just too like, minded souls. And so, you know, I, I I know where she is emotionally and spiritually, you know, usually uh, as we move through life. And, you know, she really was at a place, I think, uh, you know, kind of exhausted and turned inside out from all the touring and travel mm-hmm. um, and then was stuck at home and thought, you know, what am I going to do? I'm not just going to sit here. And she started to um, she started to, you know, just put it out there, do a couple of covers and enjoyed the experience. It was like, it's really fulfilling and brought some purpose into being quarantined. So I think that was actually a big part of it. In some ways, you know, I'm not sure she would have had the same kind of focus if she weren't housebound. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: So I'd I'd like to go back in time with you to... And I know you've told this story before because I've heard other interviews with you, but I'd like to hear it directly from you, how you met Anne and Nancy and how that relationship flourished into what it became in the 70s and 80s and beyond.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, it's my go-to story because it's what really happened. And the scene of the meeting was, uh, it was in a high school class, in high school German class, actually. I was a pretty new girl from uh, having moved uh, to Seattle from Denver, or actually Bellevue is was- suburb of Seattle, as you know. And so I really didn't have too many friends, but I did have the Beatles. And that was sort of the thing that I was such a Beatle fanatic. And they they really buoyed me during a time when I was kind of, you know, disoriented. And so they had played in town. And I'd gone to the show and, you know, was way in the back and just saw these little tiny guys on stage and really... It just, I mean, I thought there they are, but everyone's screaming. So, in any case, I didn't have, you know, a super amazing experience there. I was glad I was there, but in any case, it, the Beatles were fresh in the air. And my dad one morning I was reading the paper, and he said, "Oh, look, here's a girl from your school, Sammamish, who won the Beatles essay." Uh, so there was some kind of contest, which is what the Beatles mean to me. And uh, so she'd written her her paragraph and it won. And so there she was, and she had one of those little super eight cameras. That was her, her prize that she posed for the photo. And there was this girl, Anne, who sits in front of me in the German class. We were not friends at all. I just knew of her. But I thought there's a commonality there's someone who knows the Beatles. Okay. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is someone in my tribe. So I so that day I um I think the Beatles had a new record out called a revolver. And so I thought Well, I'll see if she's a real Beatle fan. So I sat behind her. And before class started, I started humming the most obscure song on that record, just to sort of throw her a line and see if she'd take the bait and if she could recognize it. And it was called Love You Too by George Harrison. And I just kind of went... And she... uh, Man, she just took it and ran. She was just like, "I've got a fish." <laughs> I mean, i i was I was so excited, but I didn't know how to say, "Hey, here, um, you know, my name is Sue." And you know, I just thought, "I'll just see if the Beatle thing is a connection," and it really was. She whipped around in her chair, and we just started talking. And she said, "Do you have the record?" And yes. And what's the best song on there? And did you go to the Beatles show? Yes. And all of a sudden, it just was. I found my person. So then I was just really, in, you know, really happy to find someone that I could share this music with. And I remember I, you know, I was a teenage girl. And so it's like, well, I'll call you and we can talk sometime. So I, I called her and uh, talk on the phone. And in the background, there was this commotion going on. And I, I, I have to say, I kind of got irritated because I really wanted to get to know her and have her attention. But in the background, there was all this laughing and this, it sounded like a kid tumbling on these beds trying to distract her. And that was Nancy. And Ann was laughing the whole time. And they were just having a blast. So I thought, well, you know, this is weird because I have a younger sister and I, I, I we have no, not, there's no real commonality there. So I eventually met Nance and really hit it off with this kid. I mean, she was such an amazing, and, and she already played guitar. I mean, she was this 12-year-old, hilarious I mean, I just had never met anybody like her. So that was the beginning of a friendship. They they already had a a number of, as you know from the interview with Mark, they had a, a number of groups already going and immediately asked me to join when they saw that I had a guitar and I could not imagine doing that. I was way too introverted and could not go to the performer place at all in the beginning. So we just started playing in the bedroom and they showed me lots and lots of chords and I knew how to harmonize a little bit, but they got me deeper into it. One of the things that was so cool about both of those young ladies was that they had had a lot of experience in choirs and they had really good ears and they also had sung a lot in their family. And so they, they had a natural harmony besides the fact that they were sisters as well. So it was really, really fun to have them f- help me find my place in a three-part harmony. They certainly guided me there. And that was just a, you know a revelation to me. So, so that's where it all started was kind of a fan approach to music and then the fact that they were already you know really working on something and kind of brought me in uh as far as I could go but I could not right.
1: go on stage now were you yeah. self-taught at this point and were they self-taught
0: yes absolutely I think that their mom had bought them uh what was it called oh Mel Bay I think that was an, a 60s guitar book with all the chords in it I had a chord book as well, Mm -hmm. but I I mean, I really have to say I was a very amateur guitar player. And once they showed me, you know, how the E went with the A and it was just, they really opened a musical door for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I already had... um, I played piano. I had had a a number of piano lessons along the way. And I remember when I was moving away, when I was in eighth grade from my home, and actually in San Diego, I remember the teacher said, you should continue playing. You have something. And I never forgot that. And, you know, it it made me feel like I might have someone recognize something in me, which I had never seen. So that was a little bit of something that gave me some confidence to sing the, the songs with them. So... That's
1: awesome. I find that collaboration and just playing and singing with other people is a portal into somewhere that you just cannot go on your own through these self teach books. I started with, I think, Alfred's self teach oh, um, yeah. book one for guitar. In fact, I did that. This co- I'll show you the guitar behind me because it's the got one some that,
0: nice looking guitars there, Brian.
1: Well, this one here, wow. this yeah. one was given to my dad by, I believe, Howard Lease.
0: No kidding. Yeah. And so what's the make on that?
1: This is a limited edition Ovation Ovation, classical guitar. I thought it was classical.
0: Look at that. Yeah, look at that wide neck.
1: It's got the nylon strings. Beautiful. And so my dad had that laying around. And because he was obviously, you know, the tour pilot for Hart and had a love for music at a young age and he played and I looked up to him. So I picked up that guitar and I learned from that book, Alfred Self-Teach, book number one. And that's as far as I got. It's just that book. <laughs> but the rest of my musical knowledge came from playing with other people and bands and just fireside acoustic sessions and that type of thing. And I tell you, it's like a university course when you work with the right people. And, Isn't uh, it? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I think that's the truth with songwriting collaborations that I've uh, been in. I did a bunch of songs with a guy who's a film composer and who was Ber- Berkeley School of Music, and mm. it was the first time that I'd ever sat down in the same room with someone who actually got out staff paper and wrote the notes that we were writing. And you know, usually, you just put on the old cassette and recorded it. And that that made me think I've, I'm kind of out of my depth here but i feel it's good for me you know it's just above where you are and it makes you makes you rise up
1: my understanding is you went off to college after Mm -hmm. uh, high school and ann and nancy had a couple of albums under their belt and were touring how did you reconnect with them and what was the impetus behind that reconnection and that collaboration that started at uh, i think dog and butterfly
0: That's right. So I was actually in Berkeley, California, at Cal there, getting my master's in German literature of all things. I just loved lit and I was was pretty good in German. So that was my focus for a while. But I should say that I had kept in very close touch with Anna Nance as things started to take off for them with Dreamboat Annie and then Little Queen. It wasn't as though, you know, we split off and then came back many years later. It was, we saw each other at Christmas. I remember in my apartment in Berkeley, they'd be on the road and they'd call me at three in the morning and I'd I'd get really irritated with them, like... Don't you know, there? <laughs> don't you see that not the whole world is a rock star? And it, right. I mean, it was all in fun. But in any case, you know, we certainly had kept in touch and they would always play me early versions of the songs, but I was on a different path. And so they were coming to play in San Francisco. Uh, Hart was playing at a place called the Cow Palace, uh, which was a venue back then that was the equivalent to the arena in Seattle. Oh, wow. And um And I remember that they came over to Berkeley in a limo and I hadn't seen them for a while. They were just coming off nine months on the road straight and two women and 30 men. (laughs) I'll never forget that. And I just can't tell you how much they earned where they got to, you Mm -hmm. know, the small little places, the nine months on the road, you know, bless the guys, but still (laughs) <laughs> you know, day in day out, amazing, amazing fortitude and, and dedication to what they wanted to get to, and so they came to my little place and they got out. I remember they they were all dolled up. They had these perms, you know, it was some new look, mm-hmm. and they had these beautiful jackets. And I saw them through new eyes in a way because they were very glamorous and they looked beautiful. I mean, of course, I, I always knew they were beautiful women, but this was stunning they have boots on and they look like rock stars and when i saw them i you know they probably saw the surprise in my face i'll never forget and they just said they started laughing they go i know look i know we (laughs) this is this is what we kind of have to do right but i mean that not that they minded it but it was really fun you know to to know they were still in there Uh, they hadn't completely become a sassy rock stars so we went and started playing guitars that afternoon. They had about, uh, I guess, four or five hours with me before they had to go play their show. And the limo guy waited outside, and we just had the best reunion you can imagine. You know, I was deep into German literature, and all of a sudden this sort of incredible golden thing washed over me the beauty of making music as you said with other people it's just indescribable and I think that what they got from it if I may be so bold is just you know a connection with somebody who really knows them and isn't treating them like rock stars also maybe because I have a, a woman mm-hmm. uh, and we you know we laughed so hard it was just an amazing reunion and at one point They brought out some notebook paper, and they said, Epic Records wants us to deliver a complete album. So I think at that time it was nine or ten songs in two months, and we haven't started writing, and we have no ideas because all we've done is go on stage and see hotel rooms. But we have this little idea, and so um, they showed it to me, and it was actually pretty well along. I mean, I could tell they had a verse and a chorus and I helped them with the bridge and it was just all for fun. We were laughing the whole time and then we'd sing it we go, that's fun. That's pre- pleasant. In any case, I just thought it was fun. And uh, suddenly there was a song, Dog and Butterfly. And, you know, I helped with some lyrics here and there and they went back to Seattle and played it for Mike Flicker, their producer. Right away, because he was saying, we've got, we've got to get songs and we got to go with this. They already had studio time booked. And uh, he said, why don't you go back there next weekend and see what else you can come up with? And so it started a very surreal, as I look back on it, a time of writing this, this record where, you know, they had a big advance at that point from their label. And so mm-hmm. they, they would fly down and they, we would go to uh, this penthouse suite at the top of the at knob hill and you know fancy san francisco for the weekend the limo would come pick me up from my little hovel you know i was like cinderella i would go go to this incredible <laughs> incredible place uh, at the mark hopkins uh, at all all these you know different beautiful hotels and we'd stay in all weekend and write a song and on sunday the limo dropped me off, you know, and I was went back to reality, and off they went uh, to Seattle. And they call me during the week and say, "The song is really coming together. We made this change," or they just love it. But I mean, it seemed like we were on a roll, you know. And it, it all came from the spirit of kind of fun and love of music in those days, without any sense of what uh, a label was looking for, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at the track list for Dog and Butterfly and and what an album. Who was in the room during these sessions? I assume just everyone was there collaborating and contributing in some way. Was it mainly you, Anne and Nancy, and then Roger and, and Howard would sit in on a few songs or was everybody there for every song?
0: No, I would say that, you know, f- so uh, let me just uh, choose a song. So Mistral Wind, for example, mm-hmm. uh, Raj had a riff for that, Yeah, uh, that Nance had recorded. Da-da-da-da. I think Nance spoke about that in the interview. And she brought it to Anne and me and just said, can we build something around this you know this was the the foundation but raj was never there we went to the band with a completed song that had been built around that one signature riff mm. but we fleshed it out and it went in all kinds of you know different directions but that was his so it it was sort of like that. They'd sometimes uh, give this. Used to really get us. They'd sometimes, you know, really to their credit, their job is to rock out and make up riffs and do stuff. They'd go and and record maybe a sound check and give us a a cassette tape of you know eight minutes of a jam and hand it to us and say, "Here's a song we wrote," mm-hmm. and we'd listen to it and it would be eight minutes of you know a riff here, a riff there, a false start. Sometimes something kind of cool would happen, but not a song and they'd go put a singing part on it and we'd go a singing part <laughs> that that's the lyrics and, and the melody <laughs> that's what the song is about i mean it was all sort of in fun but it was also through their lens it was like this thing really rocks and you guys go do whatever you do to right. singing part thing so nowadays they call it top lining but that's uh, how we wrote most of them was uh just three of us mm-hmm. um with, so
1: then there's songwriting then put, credits there right i mean with sorry to interrupt you sue but no, no. I'm, I'm still unclear on and i'm trying to figure out over time mm-hmm. as i interview more musicians and songwriters is the the legalities of it so when you're writing a song i guess it's an understanding that's reached as to how the songwriting credits and royalties are going to be split and then there's a separate performance credit or royalty that is assigned to that song how does that work legally
0: Okay, so we have a song, and mm-hmm. it is a composition. We call it a comp- call it. A, it's called composition legally, uh, meaning you know, lyrics, chords, melody. Okay, that's that's the song. So let's say in the case of Dog and Butterfly, there are three writers on that that the three of us wrote that song. And so we owned the composition and we split up what we considered, what percentage of the, we contributed, you know, so Uh that, so the hundred percent of the pie would be split up. However, we determined that to be in terms of each of our contributions. So that's that's that side. There's also another side, that's one copyright that's for the composition. The other side of things is for the re- sound recording or the master. And that's where the performers are, uh, are are part of that, the actual performance that has been recorded. That is also a copyright that you have on a song. And that typically this, the master is owned by a label if you're signed to a label. Okay. So um, and then the artists receive a royalty according to their contract with the label. So before they sign, they say, yes, we'll agree to you know, fourteen percent royalty, whatever it may be, eighteen percent, okay. and that's how that's how the players are paid uh, with that participation from the sales of that recording. Okay, but they have, but unless they wrote on the song, they would have no piece of the composition side.
1: Mm. Are you following me? Yeah, so, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Okay, I've heard artists before say, just kicking themselves. I wish I had not given up the masters. And I think now I understand what they mean by that.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. and as particularly today in the world of streaming, the masters side gets about three times as much as the composition side oh. of, from the streaming services. So that's really where the gold is. For um, you know, I mean, again, the streaming uh, payments are crazy and, and, and small, but the much larger percentage is is with those masters. That's the value hmm. in the streaming world.
1: So before Dog and Butterfly, and so Dreamboat Annie and, and Little Queen, my understanding is that Anne and Nancy followed Roger and Michael Fisher up to Vancouver. And there was songwriting and recording and performing in Vancouver. Were you pretty tuned in to what was happening? And did you know how special that band was at the time? Because if they're up there in Vancouver, maybe they're flying under the radar in the United States, and then they just come down and and make this huge splash. But what were you thinking at the time?
0: Well, The earliest days of Heart, and this would be before Ann met Mike Fisher, they were in clubs around town and they were starting to get a following. And so there was an awareness. I wouldn't say they were the top band in town, but they were playing out a lot. So I had seen them a number of times and um, Nance wasn't, she was in high school. (laughs) But when they, they really got serious and they moved to Vancouver because you know, and wanted to be with Mike, but also I think Mike had a sort of a masterminded, a vision for what they could be and was a very hard worker and uh, wanted, you know, wanted them to work really hard. And so they did and they just committed And so they started to rise up and become a draw for the bigger clubs in Vancouver. So I was aware of that. And then I'd go up there occasionally and see them and, you know, be really surprised at how excited people were to see them. At that time, I think they were called Little Led Zeppelin because they were doing a lot of Zeppelin covers Mm -hmm. um, in the band. And they were really good. Raj was really nailing those uh, Jimmy Page riffs. And Ann was for a time as she was developing her voice was an amazing robert plant sound alike mm-hmm. Uh right. in terms of how she was approaching the rock yeah
1: yeah i saw that 2000 was it 2006 or 8 tribute that they did for led zeppelin and i forget what song it was oh was, was that
0: at the uh the at the hall of fame at the um i'm not, I'm not sure what's it, it
1: called it was like the um it was a center for performance. The, yeah, yeah. the, the Kennedy Centers, yeah, because
0: the Kennedy Centers honor, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That that yeah. performance I think on YouTube has millions and millions of views. It's just incredible to see the members of led zeppelin like tearing up as they're listening to that that was
0: amazing wasn't it
1: standing ovation yeah you know what was incredible. funny about
0: that was they came to them and said would you like to do this and you know the crown jewel stairway to heaven and close the show mm-hmm. <laughs> yes 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 and so They said, well, we'll have the music director call you, you know, about where you want to be in the band. You know, do you want to have a guitar? And she she said, do you know how many times I've played Stairway to Heaven in clubs? (laughs) Like thousands, literally. And, uh, And so he called her up and he said, you can do what you want, but we're, you know, very comfortable having our lead guy shadow you. And so you would pretend to play and the guy... Whoever he is would would be playing the real thing, mm-hmm. and suggested that that might be their comfort level since they didn't really know Hart that well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And she, that's when she said, "I can handle it. Thank you. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know." Yeah. And uh, I tell you, when I saw that, I was just <gasps> <gasps> I knew they could do it, but it was such a big moment, yeah, you know, huge. and and they just nailed it like the the pros they are. I mean, I just I saw no nerves. I just saw. You know steel uh iron will and and professionalism confidence and i think that's what made it special yeah they did it
1: in terms of your songwriting and your collaboration with ann and nancy over the years when they started with the big labels in the mid-80s and i think it was the heart self-titled album where i noticed maybe your name wasn't on as many tracks or
0: I don't yeah, know if that's That's, right.
1: that's correct, but w- that were, is the, correct. were the labels starting to push their own agenda on Anna Nancy at that point?
0: Yes. They sure were. The thing is, Anna Nance went along with it, but what happened really was that there had been two underperforming records by the band, Private Audition and Passion Works. Mm-hmm. And um So they had their fans and they did okay, but they didn't do what previous records had done. And of course, those metrics are what the label looks at. And so, you know, a guy came, they were not in a negotiating place of of great power. Uh, A guy came from Capitol, a really terrific guy named Don Grierson. And he loved Anne's voice so much and he loved the band. And he said, you know, we want to take you from Epic. I think Epic was ready to say goodbye But part of it is going to be that we are going to want to work with you on this and we're going to find the very best songs. And we're going to suggest a producer and Ron Nevison was his name. And so I don't know if they were ironclad in terms of here's your offer. You have to take these things or if it was. We have suggestions. I'm not sure how it went down, but they did do that and go with it. And Don Grierson was an incredible A&R person for them, on the phone with them all the time, making sure that this was going to be the right record and the record that Capitol wanted Mm -hmm. as well. And so part of that was going outside for the songs that they thought would be radio hits, Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because rock was really changing. The rock that uh, had made the first iteration of Heart You know what it was uh was no longer really the sound was not really selling yeah so that's yeah so well
1: it did get i mean that's just a a fact of the 80s is that it it changed dramatically from rock to more synthy sounds yeah
0: right and it 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 did i mean i think it had to do with with, you know many many changes in the industry have to do with tech developments right and new things and yeah
1: Yeah, and they rolled with it and did okay. so pleased that these dreams was a number one hit and the lyrics were written by bernie Topin what a cool collaboration to be able to work with bernie who was is, uh is any elton john's lyricist or yes
0: indeed and yeah. you know such a uh such a hero for us um we were massive elton john fans and knew those records intimately every syllable and so that song actually was written, sort of existed, and was out there in the This Is Available universe. You know, they didn't work directly with Bernie. He wrote it with a wonderful writer named Martin Page, and I think they had pitched it to the Starship at that time. Oh, okay. But they, and, they, and they actually, they wrote We Built This City, the, um, Bernie and Martin Page. Okay. Uh, so that was around the same yeah. time you know and so I think that Nevison brought that song I, I actually was there the night that they were uh, going through songs and he played that one and uh, Anne was not that interested it, it was very synthy, uh the demo and she just was not vibing with it at all um I, I, that's an overstatement she just she just couldn't find her place in it it was there were just it was not rock and didn't have guitars but Nance heard something in it and she I remember she went up to the speaker and put her arms around it uh this and just said that's mine and
1: mm-hmm. physically took possession of that <laughs> she physically
0: took it <laughs> that's
1: great what a great story as you may have noticed there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes and for many of them we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place our newsletter you can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So at this time in the 80s, at the same time in the Pacific Northwest, there was this grunge scene that was developing and morphing into something that really became sort of a signature sound in the early nineties that mm-hmm. you know, resulted in mother love bone and Nirvana and mud honey. Were you tuned in to what was happening in the Seattle area at that time?
0: Not only was I not tuned in, but I remember, uh, that, uh, I think Nance mentioned her dear friend, Kelly Curtis, uh, who was her, her you know, uh, I think he was 10 when they met. Uh, lifelong friend. And of course, I I knew, te- I knew Kelly very well, too. Uh, but I remember I got a call from Kelly, who at that time was still trying to find his way in music. He knew he wanted to be in music. He had been the publicist for Heart. He traveled a lot. And then he was back in... Seattle, feeling his way. And, and and I remember he called me one night and said, you have to come down to the central in Pioneer Square. You may be still there central tavern yeah and i knew that it was sort of a grungy uh to use that word you know place that i now i don't think so and he said you i'm gonna send a taxi for you i mean he was so he was so adamant that i come and you've got to see this band uh mother no i think they were called mookie blaylock at the time no they were they were mother love bone i'm sorry mother love bone and So I, you know, I really, okay. Okay. I mean, he just kept after me and to his credit, I mean, that's what you do. And so I went down there and lo and behold, there were a bunch of my friends around. And so clearly uh, Kelly had called everybody and done the same sales job on them. I will send a taxi to bring you down here. So here's all these people and here comes mother Lovebone. And okay. They're, they're kind of loud. And I, I just thought, okay, well, they're, they're not, they're not bad, but then, the lead singer Andrew was uh, Andrew I thought, Wood, right? Andrew Wood. Yeah. I just was sitting, you know, sort of in the back, just taking him in, going, "I'm not. Sh- what is this? You know what? Okay, what is this? I and and he started to swing the microphone out over the crowd, you know, almost in like a Roger Daltrey move. D- Daltrey mm-hmm. used to uh, swing the mic, and right. um, and I thought. Oh no! This is like a guy in his bedroom pretending to be Roger. That was my association. it to be Roger Daltrey. Yeah. yeah, derivative. Like oh, and then you have to swing the mic, and so uh, so he's swinging it, and it started to come way low, you know, or to like it, it became dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this guy, what is what is this about? And it's so a I, I I thought he was a jackass, <laughs> and then he took a full pitcher of beer and just. Threw it over the crowd. Oh
1: my! And I goodness. went. You
0: know, I I'm out of the. I'm out. I'm I, I'm too old to appreciate what this is saying. I mean, mm-hmm. I I don't know what. It's not for me. And uh and I remember uh leaving not in a huff or anything, but just like Ugh, I, I don't get it, and. Um, and so and uh, Kelly's
1: like, isn't and this great? <laughs> yeah.
0: he, he did come up. What do you think? And, you know, I, I said, kind of, he just about heard people with the mic and he goes, oh, you know, he's just trying to find him. He's trying to find his persona. But the main thing is the music. Right. And, you know, I could, I could sort of see it, but I never, I mean, your question was, you know, did, did I see it? Did I know about it? What did I think? Right. I did not. I could not get it. Yeah. And, uh, this was, and, and I do think, uh, that he was experimenting that Andrew did finally find a really cool stage persona. you know, it was early days and yeah. he was trying to trying to but um, but yeah, then, and then um, that
1: morphed into Pearl Jam, right?
0: Yes, it did. after yes, it Andrew did. died. Andrew died, yes. And that was really interesting. I guess the one thing that I could tell you about my observations, I was really on the periphery of this, not so much, you know, center, Uh, but certainly Anne and Nance were invited into the fold a little bit because of Kelly. And I remember that when Andrew od It was devastating, naturally, to his band and to Kelly, who had started to manage them. And uh, they all got together for this, I think Nance mentioned this, to be together as a family would in in their grief. And Nance, I think, went to that. And she told me something that I, I never forgot. She said, this is something special in this band. It's more than professional. These guys our family and they are completely loyal and bonded to each other they've been through this really heavy thing and Kelly is a part of it and Kelly is leading them almost like a you know he was in the youth group almost like one of their youth group leaders from the church way back when uh you know opening his house up and i and i was really touched by that and then when i learned that Kelly never had a written contract with them that they worked on a handshake you know their whole career with him I thought that's where it started, you know. That
1: speaks volumes about Kelly and also those band members, doesn't it? Yeah,
0: they're they're really excellent people, you know.
1: Shep Gordon is the same way. I don't know if you've ever met Shep before, but
0: I've heard so many great interviews with him. I and and seen uh, Mike Myers' documentary.
1: Oh, Super Mensch!
0: Yeah, have you seen that?
1: I did. Yeah, that's
0: something. I, something
1: i was so impressed with that documentary and with shep and i i reached out to shep because um it was a stupid thing in the documentary he talked about this flight that he had with alice cooper shep did mm-hmm. where he said there was an emergency landing or they thought they were going to crash and that was the real life incident that inspired Cameron Crowe to write the scene in Almost Famous, which made it into the film where they almost crashed and it was a comical scene. But the reason I reached out to him, and this is so dumb, I don't know why I even cared, but after my dad died in 2003, Anne and Nancy, through Carol Peters, their manager at the time, emailed my sister and I expressing their condolences and telling stories about my dad. And one of those stories was on a flight, there was a near crash landing where they had to land in a field somewhere. And Cameron used that as inspiration for Almost Famous. And I watched the movie and you know, sure enough, the the pilot's name was Craig, not Greg, and it all made sense. And I confirmed that recently with Greg Mariotti, who is Cameron's partner in vinyl films. And oh, right. uh, yeah, and he told me. He's like, oh yeah, that was based upon the flight with your dad, not Shep. Anyway, that's how petty I am. I emailed uh, Shep or I messaged him on Facebook and and I asked him about that. He's like, no, no, no. That was really the flight I had with Alice Cooper when I was like, okay, well. But anyway.
0: <laughs> well, I had always heard uh, you know, I'd been on some some of those flights on those on that small plane with your dad at the helm. And some of those flights were really bumpy and really scary. You yeah. know, in that little plane you you feel yeah, everything. Yeah, the little King Air, and I think it was. King Air, yeah. it sure was. And yeah. um, and I remember uh you know howard leese was the least comfortable <laughs> flyer <laughs> and nothing against how he you know he's the most brilliant guitar player and you know none of us was really but howard really didn't like it and and i remember one time uh, cameron being on there and he looked pretty white too because we were just we were going every which way in the south i think through a tornado and that's when i thought oh that's where he got the idea <laughs> cuz he had actually been there with looking at howard's face just you know, Right, <laughs> it was amazing. It was very scary, and uh, I so I would I will uh, vote for vote for the heart story for sure on that yeah. one. Yeah. So
1: how how much did you travel with Hart on tour, and how much did you see my dad?
0: You know, not that often. I do have a a, a Greg Smith story, so I would say when I wasn't in school, I would go out uh, on tour with them, and then. I got really tired, you know, uh, on the road. I mean, I just was not made for that kind of pace. And so I, I started to just be one of those people, because I was not in the band, who would sort of sit back and say, <clears throat> oh, you're playing L.A.? I guess I'll come to that. Or mm-hmm. you're playing Chicago? So I, I would choose those dates and uh, come and, and see them. So I, I did I did see many, many shows, but I did not do the sort of grind. I did a couple of the grind day in, day out, you know, two week kind of things. But I remember that they were going to play outside of Frankfurt, Germany. And uh, so they put together a, a small tour that had a, a number of dates in the UK. I remember they played in Leeds. And I'm just remembering this uh, with The Who. Oh, and wow. that was fun. That was fun to see The Who up close, you know, oh, backstage. That yeah. was really a thrill. And so Greg was the pilot for that tour and i remember also just a, a little uh, also preface was that anna nance and i went over early before the band came over and uh and took a little beetle tour and so um you know they they rented a, a nice car in london and we drove up to liverpool uh you know on the left side of the road and it was all just you know but it was they it was great because it was just the three of us. We had an amazing time. <clears throat> uh, we finally met up with the band, I think, in Edinburgh. It was it was just a great, great time. And I think we actually flew from Edinburgh to Frankfurt and came in at around 1130 at night. Well, the airport was closed. And so uh, Greg said, the airport's closed. <laughs> <laughs> so we're driving, driving, we're flying around and everybody's like, what are we going to do? (laughs) And, and he goes, well, you know, there's a number of things we could fly to, you know, we'd fly to Hamburg, we could fly here, fly here. And then the manager was real, you know, Ken Kinnear was nervous and, you know, okay, we've got to go to the next spot. And Greg said, I'll just land it here. And so, uh, and they were going, yeah, but there's no runway lights. And he goes, I mean, because he'd had so much experience, right. Wasn't, didn't he fly in Vietnam?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah he and was. he was so confident. So I'll just I'll just put it down, and <laughs> no one has to know. So everyone went really, and and of course the management was happy about it because of the next day we you know we had to be at certain places. So we land on a dark runway, <laughs> and just fine, and we are way the hell out at the end of a dark runway. There's nothing. So what are we going to do? So Greg goes, well. I'll I'll just start walking toward the terminal. We'll see if we meet somebody and we'll tell them to come out and get the bags. So Anna Ned said, well, take Sue. She speaks German. (laughs) And so, uh, he said, "Okay, come on." So here's Greg and I walking across this, you know, the tarmac in the dark, and he was kind of jogging, and I think he was, you know, pumped up, or he was like, "Got to get something going here." You know, this is kind of a weird situation, and so I remember kind of running after him, and and uh, and he said, "Oh, look, there's a like a little, uh, almost like a little trailer with a light on, halfway to the big terminal up ahead." And so we, we went over there and there was a guy in there snoozing. It was just like in a movie, <laughs> you know, sitting at his desk. And so we knock at the door. Greg starts saying, hey, we've got, you know, uh, we've got a, a plane out here. And can you get some transportation? And the guy said, um, "Ich spreche kein English, no, no English. And so uh, so Greg goes, tell him. <laughs> Tell him that we have. <laughs> and so I, you know, so I did. I said, you know, in my best German, uh, which, you know, was okay, but enough to be understood. Um, right. You know, it's a Flug, Flugzeug, uh, ist hier, You know, So, and, and sure enough, the guy understood and called. And pretty soon they had a couple of buses coming out to pick us up with the luggage. And they dropped us off in front of the building. Everything closed. Knock, knock, nothing. Um it's dark. And mm-hmm. um, so now what do we do? We're illegally in a country. There's no uh, passport control. <laughs> no customs. No. <laughs> There's no yeah. customs. And so um, we were peeking into this huge room that I think was customs. Uh, clearly, that's where they dropped us off. And somebody opened a door in the far corner and I screamed, uh, and I said, yeah, bitte hallo," you know, and it was um, a cleaning woman. So she, I said, "Bitte come here, bitte and Sie here," yeah. And 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 everyone was going to say it louder. And so she started to come, and she came up, and you know, I, I mean, I wish I had a huge, a great ending for the story. But she actually, you know, opened the door and said, "Was ist das?" And she was Turkish. She didn't speak German too well. I didn't speak German too well, but I was able to. We opened the door and she goes, No, 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 it's, no, it's, no, it's good. And and I said, No, 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 I said all is good. And so I held it and all the band members went under my arm with their bags and ducked in <laughs> to this place. And uh and I as I talked to her and tried to keep her from uh blowing the whistle Calling and, the police. Uh, we got yeah, we got in and you know, we just didn't I don't know how we got out because we never had the
1: you didn't you have know, the stamp entry going stamp. in yeah you
0: know? so uh we just went to our hotel and everyone went it's good thing you speak german and and uh you know it was great it was actually a really uh, you know an unforgettable adventure but your dad was such a go-getter so fearless it was just great
1: that's awesome that's a great story thanks for sharing that i so i don't have to. a lot of stories uh of his adventures on the road but the ones i do have are very much like that where he he just kind of blazes his own path and and is totally. fearless. And that's fearless. actually, you know, closed airports are no, he was no stranger to closed airports because that's how he learned to fly when he was 16. He actually oh, would, no kidding. He hopped the fence at airports and would steal planes and just take <gasps> Where off. Where was this? In um, Lake Tahoe, I believe.
0: Okay, wow. And, and
1: he would just take planes. <laughs> wow. And he's he was self-taught, and then, of course, when he went to the military and, and officer candidate school, and that's when he got his official training to become a helicopter, um, assault helicopter pilot, and wow. later um, learning wow. to fly uh, commercial aircraft and whatnot. But, yeah, so thank you for that, Sue. That's great.
0: Oh, my pleasure. I love that story, because I really, without him, you know, I don't know. I mean, no other pilot would have done that. You know, it's like, we're not going <laughs> to... We're not landing on a black, uh, a black runway, but uh, he saved the day and everybody made it to the gig the next day. So that's that funny. was terrific. Yeah, it was fun.
1: So let's go back a little bit. Love mongers. Tell us about love mongers because that's a project that I think was a mid '90s, uh, maybe '97 or so, and that's where you were actually in the band with Anne. And <laughs> that's Ansel, right.
0: right. Yeah so that started with an offer for a benefit to Anna Nance and at that time the the band was off there wasn't sort of a a, the band was not solid Uh, they you know they had made a record that didn't do that well Um, people were doing other projects and I think Anna Nance were very tired and so they, they were very much a duo at that time trying to figure out what the next thing was and they wanted to strip things down after the big production the hair the the mtv of it all and that was sort of their mindset at that time that was underscored and really supported by what was happening really in the the aesthetic uh the scene in seattle it was to be to do it yourself and none of the trappings of the big spectacle with grunge and so that's kind of where they were that when this uh, benefit offer came in to play at the Paramount, just a couple of songs. And so I remember we were out at Nancy's uh, farm in Woodenville just for fun with our friends, uh, Frank Cox and some others, a bunch of people one night. And it, as it got later, um, Anne said, you know, we should really try to figure out what we're going to do for the show, what kind of songs. And so we started singing some old sort of folk tunes and a Peter, Paul and Mary song. And, you know, it was all over the map. And, and Frank Cox, our dear friend, had this beautiful tenor and they they, they were singing great harmonies. And I think Anna and Anne said, God, you should come on stage with us. You know, let's just, um, you know, you guys can back us up. They want Anna and Nancy Wilson, but we can deliver a kind of a beautiful vocal thing with all mm-hmm. of us. And so let's let's do that. So that's really where it started, just at the farmhouse late one night. And we all thought it was a one-off. And it certainly seemed to be that way. But then it was so much fun, and and knowing Anne, any chance to get a group together and to sing, you know. So this is all of all of a sudden we're we're a group, and we were. I remember that night we were laughing and said, "This is a, this is almost like a little band." And we said, "What do we call ourselves?" And we were thinking uh, about different. Th- someone said the Hate Mongers, and someone, no, the Love. And we laughed. We thought this is. Really silly name, but fun, and uh, especially for the occasion. So that's where the name came from, as almost like a joke. And then it seemed pretty fun. And soon enough, we had a couple of people come forward, a little label through Fred Meyer, of all places, that was starting up. And a huge heart fan, Brant Berry, what a great guy. And he said, I, I want to make a, a lovemonger's record. I have a budget from the company. And so we uh, started writing songs and and uh, made a record and released it on this little tiny indie label, and no one really thought that it was going to become anything. And it found its fans, but um, mm-hmm. what what it really was was a wonderful. I, I see it as a um, as a great. Re- you know, reprieve for Anna Nance to get back to their roots in a sense, which were acoustic and yeah. were uh, vocal, you know, harmony based. And I think they were really refreshed by all that. And we were sort of there to, Frank and I, to support them and to lend our, you know, a- a- and we wrote, we actually wrote songs, all of us together. So that's the story of the Love Mongers. We did a couple of little tours and played some clubs up and down the West Coast, just had a, a ball, you know, and I think it was, um, you know, Friends on the Road. um, Yeah. And and it was just great. Lots of jokes came from that.
1: The harmonies were great. I I just listened to Miracle Girl before the interview. And that song sounds a lot like I mean, it's so full and robust in terms of the layers and the harmonies. It sounded like a broadway tune almost i don't know if you've seen springtime is it spring awakening
0: yeah i have it
1: it kind of reminded me of like a spring awakening really joyous uh, harmony driven song
0: you know i haven't heard that in so long but i remember it being really musical and melodic and those harmonies yeah that's that's fun that's right
1: so a couple more questions I know we've been going over an hour sure. here and I appreciate okay. your time no, it's so I remember listening to another interview with you where you said that baby Lestrange was the first album where you had publishing
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I don't know what that means can you tell us what publishing is and what it means to an artist
0: I can you know I just taught a class earlier today on publishing so I think I can I think I can uh, pull that out I'll put on my t- Put your hat here for just a minute, and okay. you know, ask people to bear with me. It's not very difficult, and it's not very long. So here's the idea: you've got a song, uh, you've got the songwriter, and every song has to have a publisher associated. So first thing to do is forget everything you know about the word publishing, like book publishing, newspaper publishing. This is something very different. Uh, the The term actually arose out of uh, you know going way, way back to the '30s the idea of sheet music that was published and that's how people, you know, got their music. So that's where the word publishing comes from. But music publishing now really just means sort of overseeing this copyrighted song or a number of them. Right. So there's a publisher associated with every song and they kind of do the, the paperwork around that. So they issue licenses. If someone wants to cover your song, they'll write that license out. They'll get the, they'll get the uh, the contract going and someone will pay Uh, the publisher, the publisher collects all of the money uh, that comes in. If you get, let's say, a a song placed in a movie, that fee will come to the publisher. All of the streaming fees, all of that comes to the publisher. And the publisher splits it right down the middle. They take half and they pay their songwriter half. Mm. And if you've got a bunch of songwriters, you're going to be sharing what's called the writer's share, which is 50% of that total income. So the more writers you have, the less... The less, less good it is for your bank account, but I only laugh because I was at the Grammys once, and there was a song up for Song of the Year, and it had nineteen writers on it, uh, oh and, uh, and you know, and I just thought wow, at a different age, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because those 19 people are sharing 50% of something. So, (laughs) but anyway, so that's really what it is. So your publisher, if you have a, a publisher, someone interested in representing your songs as a songwriter, they take half your money, but they do a lot of things for you. Not only that paperwork I mentioned, they register your copyrights and so on, but also, they push your your songs for you into the hands of people who might want to cover your song or do something with it that generates money. And that might be something that you as a writer in Seattle can't really do. You don't have those contacts. So the publisher will put you in touch with maybe co-writers. They will open avenues and doors for you that you wouldn't necessarily have. So it's great to have a publisher in that way. If no publishing company is interested in you, very often the case, then you are your own publisher but every song has a publisher
1: professor ennis thank you for that lesson
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's why they pay me the big bucks stuff. Right. uh no i you know i i love i actually love talking about this stuff and it's it's a concept that very few people you know it's, it, get you gotta gotta kind of learn it so
1: yeah and i heard on the nancy wilson interview with mark Mirin, or was it no i think it was another podcast interview she did called record store day i believe with Paul Myers, I'll have to send you the link to that. Oh, cool! Because he specifically asked about you and your relationship.
0: Oh, really? With Nancy? Cool. Yeah, yeah. He talks about <laughs> you,
1: and uh, yeah, I'll send you the link to that uh, today. But I think Nancy said that she gave you one of her signature Martins. That you were the one of the, one of the folks this that is she true. gave, this gave is that true. guitar to. So, where does that guitar sit, and do you play it?
0: Very good. Yes, she did. I was lucky enough to, uh, you know, it was and she didn't tell me it was just one day the UPS guy or FedEx comes and there's this big heavy thing and I opened it and it's like she sent me a Martin, you know, and then it's this incredibly beautiful guitar, uh, as you can imagine, designed by her with all, all these personal touches, beautiful wood she chose. I mean, it is Nancy's wish and creation mm-hmm. so in, in any case it is in the next room I don't play it as much as I should because the action needs to be lowered a little bit so mm-hmm. when I play it it's like oh you know in order to make a pure chord it's so that I have to have just a little bit of tweaking done on it but it is a beautiful thing and I cherish it you know I just yeah. I'm, I'm I'm nervous to you know even almost play too it in pretty some to ways. play <laughs> almost in some ways yeah, yeah. Yeah. If
1: you need a good, good, you probably already know about about Mike Lowell's guitar shop. Mike passed, yes, um, I think last year. But his son is carrying on. And I oh, think,
0: I didn't know that. I'm yeah, glad you there, mentioned that it. That shop
1: is still at it, and I've taken my guitars in since Mike passed, and they're doing a great job.
0: That is great to know. I'm going to go there because I'd love to, you know, carry on the tradition. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's great to know. Thanks.
1: I got Michael's yeah. name from Roger, actually, because I interviewed Roger. He was like one of the first guests on my podcast.
0: Oh, wow. How long have you been going with this? A couple, this? Years. A couple oh, of good. years. That's yeah, great. Yeah, I
1: started in March of 2019, and I think Mike Fisher and Roger Fisher, I interviewed them at the same time. They were episodes four and five, I believe.
0: Okay, early uh, on. It was
1: such a long interview, I had to split it into two episodes. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they had a lot to say.
1: They did, yep. Yeah, I hope and, they
0: uh, I hope they said nice things about me. No, I'm kidding. I'm sure were, I didn't even come up. But yeah. uh yeah, that's great. Good good. That's good. Have you interviewed any of the other guys in Hart? No,
1: I reached out to Howard and he wasn't interested at all in uh uh-huh. in, in, okay. you know, it wasn't anything personal. He just isn't no. into It's
0: not his st- it's not his style. Yeah,
1: he's down yeah. in Vegas I think doing uh you know, doing yeah, his thing the at those shows. Vault
0: thing, yeah. Yeah, right. the Vault. Mm -hmm.
1: And I haven't had a chance to talk to any of the other folks like DeRosier or, um, you know, Ken Kinnear can connect me, I'm sure. Ken's still around, by the way. So Oh, good. Yeah. Uh,
0: Yeah, good to know. I haven't heard about him in years. Good.
1: But Uh, uh, I wanted to finish off with uh, a little discussion about your current profession. You are teaching at Shoreline Community College, right? That's right. And and you have uh, sold out songwriting classes. And I'm fascinated (laughs) By the the concept of teaching someone how to write a song. Because Mm. I heard an interview with Chris Martin from Coldplay and and I was, I think it was during the Bee Gees documentary. I don't know if you've seen the Bee Gee's documentary.
0: Oh, yes, I have. I just ate up every second of it. I mean, I almost wonderful. It was almost like a kid. I just couldn't get close enough to take in every, you know. (laughs) It was just fantastic.
1: The way Chris Martin from Coldplay described songwriting on that documentary, he said something like, songwriting is more like capturing energy that's out there. You aren't creating it, but mm. you are, and I, I'm I'm probably butchering this, but you're channeling something mm-hmm. that's just out there and you have to be able to listen and understand what you're hearing so that you can properly memorialize that energy into the song that you're writing. I thought that was a beautiful way of describing it, almost like Mm -hmm. we're a vessel and we don't have as much to do with creating a great song as we think we may do. Yes. Um, So when you are teaching songwriting, how do you approach it mechanically and also the more spiritual part that Chris Martin's talking about in terms yeah. of like that energy.
0: Well, I think that there are plenty of songwriters who don't necessarily have that channeling, but there is a craft to writing, right? right. And there are things you can teach. Song structure, you know, the architecture of putting a, a song together that'll keep your 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 listener engaged. And lyric writing. The idea of capturing something in a way where it hasn't been said before, things like that. We talk about having a song that has a North Star to it, a a central concept that sometimes is encapsulated in a title. I mean, some people write songs just by collecting titles and will be jamming out something some night and go, what should I call this? Go look at your title list and go, oh, that's exactly what this one is called and so you know there are different ways to get something going but I I think when you do have that moment when you're so lost or maybe not maybe it's found (laughs) in the moment of you know creating something the stuff is going through your head and then something lands you maybe you sing a melody and you think where did that come from that's you know that's the magic isn't it that's Mm. probably what he's talking about yeah and you're really grateful for that and that's the thing that keeps you coming back more than any Anything else. It's like, will I be able to not it's not something that you set out to do? It's something you make yourself available uh, for if it happens. And uh and and it doesn't you know, it doesn't necessarily happen with everyone, but I'd say the more songs you write, the better your chances. You know, so
1: right. You can practice. I can see that. I mean, the craft, just like with acting, there's a craft of acting. And then there's the art or the, the thing about acting that, you know, Robert De Niro can't teach yeah. someone else how to be Robert De Niro. I mean, there's, yeah. there's some magic there to what he does. And, uh, I would imagine in songwriting, there's something equivalent to grammar. You just, yeah. there are do's and don'ts
0: mm-hmm.
1: about the craft of songwriting, especially if you're cranking out like Willie Nelson, 10,000 songs,
0: <laughs> I know. Yeah.
1: And not all of those are coming from a magical place. <laughs> Maybe.
0: No, they're not. You know. No, they're not. And there are some people I've met uh, along the way who are successful writers. One guy, this great guy, Daryl Brown, who's had a ton of success in the, in the country world, especially with Leanne Rimes. He's just a great guy. And uh, I met him through the Grammys uh, organization. And he told me once that he had to write 120 songs before he wrote a good one. And that's the part that it it can be fun, but it's like any other skill you get. The more you practice, the next time you write a song, you're just a little bit better. I think it really is like that, unless you're a protege and then, you know, then good for you. right? (laughs) But, you know, then, then you're Paul McCartney. You know where yesterday just appeared to him uh so
1: if i were to hire you to give me private songwriting lessons how would that lesson start so let's say i hire you for this lesson and i have like a chord progression and that's like a, a d c g chord progression and then um I maybe have some lyrics like I wrote some lyrics in high school A long, long time ago um, I believe that People change for the better Yeah Winning went our separate ways I hoped it wasn't forever No It's not the end of the world Life goes on. Life goes on. Okay, so that's a high school little ditty that I wrote. It sounds like a high nice. school ditty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's okay. it's there's good. no there's no bridge. Mm-hmm. I have another set of lyrics that are kind of cheesy, but where would you take me from there? What would the process look like in an hour-long lesson to try to flush out where to go and how to refine whatever was created there
0: mm-hmm. so what i would do is and i'll commend you on the fact that you knew there there needed to be a change in the melody after the first two lines right mm-hmm. like you you sang them the same the and you know it was like an a section and you yeah. you your first slot line and then your second one is the same and the third one you gave us a little change up which was great and then the fourth one was a, was a different one, oh, life goes on. So that's great. You have an instinct there for when the changes should come. And then I would think the song is called Life Goes On. Because you said it three times or four yeah. times, three, mm-hmm. two, three, and that's almost like I start to get a, a sense of structure. I guess that's how I would first approach it. And I'd say, is this a verse? In a way, it's storytelling. Is it a chorus? Not really. It's 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 a storytelling song. It's a singer songwriter song. Not that it has to fit into a category, but I'm trying to figure out where do we go from here. And and if it's um, not if
1: it doesn't have a chorus, does that mean it's a ballad? Hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah, it's storytelling. That's right. All right. Yeah, and so I mean, your hook, your is is your tag is life goes on, and so that puts us into like a folk ballad style, and so I would then uh, do the same thing again times two. Uh, this would be like an A section of four lines and then a B and then an A, another one, A section of four lines. So the next part, you have to further your story and you have now bumped up against the second verse curse, which is uh, a joking way that songwriters talk about. And now what do I do? Okay, I've got the, <laughs> I've got the, I've right. Got, right. So I got this far and I've got a little idea going. So the second part the second verse, the second stands you know, needs to advance the story in some way. You need to, w- what else about this? So right. uh, a good way, a good approach there is then what happens? You ask yourself. Okay. okay. Right. So yeah. you're going to write one more of those. Same formula, same format, okay. same stanza, same melody. And uh, hopefully get a little bit further with your story. I'd probably go into something more personal instead of general observations about life. Okay. I would start to go personal and say, the first time I met you, I don't know what it is, but you know, I took a walk out this morning and saw this. So that would be a contrast right. that you're looking for. Yeah. And those contrasts are important because again, your job as a good writer is to keep the listener engaged. Mm. So after two of those, let's call them a sections, they're identical, a, a, now we need a B, we need to contrast. We to go somewhere else. And so what I what I would have you do or suggest that you follow is um, how can we do something that contrasts with what we have in a, in a big way? So maybe it's almost becomes a bridge in a sense. Okay. Some people might call it that, a B-section, a departure. And so It should contrast in every possible way and still belong to the song. So lyrically, maybe you shift perspective there. And, you know, the I song becomes a a little bit of a different, you know, a, a, a memory, for example. You can go back in time. You can get introspective in that section a little bit more than you have been. Anything lyrically that contrasts with where you've been. And then also musically. So you know, you've got those rhythms going in your A sections. I would probably lengthen the lines to contrast. Uh-huh. So make, you know, uh, and I want to da 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 da. I'm just making that up, but you see yeah. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That contrast. And then go back to that A section, and it feels really good after that departure into the B. It's like it a just,
1: callback in a way. It's like it's a
0: callback, it's yeah. a return home, something that you've set up. Oh, and, wow. uh, And, you know, and maybe you want to elaborate on life goes on in your B section, you know, Mm -hmm. talk about that because that's what the song's about. So what can you say about that?
1: Yeah, Um, that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well, I love, I love how just instantly the wheels started turning. I didn't tell you that I was going to do this and you immediately saw and heard what needed to be explored after just a few seconds of hearing, you know, lyrics and a couple of chords, that's fantastic.
0: Oh, you know, it's so fun to do. And who knows if that would work for you, but I'm at a place, you know, and having done it enough where I I certainly can throw ideas at a collaborator and say, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this, and Mm -hmm. then you can run with it.
1: Yeah. Well, Sue, it's been a huge pleasure to talk to you, and thanks you for too, sharing your Brian. story I'm so with us. So
0: glad we finally got to uh, got to meet. It's it's really great uh, to meet you. And you know, I love telling these stories. Yeah. They're fun, and it's fun to reminisce and think about how lucky I've been. You know, re- be reminded of that. Uh, so thank you for inviting me.
1: Absolutely, and I I will be heavily promoting this Nancy Wilson solo album, which features you, you on the You and Me track. and Yes, I've um, got
0: two other songs on there, oh, okay. uh, which is uh one's called I'll Find You and the other one is called Walk Away, which has got some strings on it. And boy, it got much bigger than we imagined in the production. Very happy with how it came out.
1: So I can't wait to hear those songs.
0: I can't wait for you to hear them.
1: I'm going to buy a physical copy of this album. Are because, you really? Yeah. That's I, so cool. Well, it, it's just, it's very nostalgic for me. Anything heart related, uh, anything oh, yeah related, I, I'm going to pick up. So Thanks again for talking to me. I will let you know when the uh, episode launches so you can share I'll it with your it folks. I'll promote it for you. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And for listeners who want to connect with Sue on social media, it looks like you have a Twitter account at Sue Ennis, right?
0: I do. Come and, say hello.
1: And also a website, sueennis.com, S mm-hmm. u e e n n i s.com
0: thank you so much brian for promoting my i I don't say too much on twitter but when i do it's about nancy no (laughs) No, i noticed that i
1: noticed that you're a good friend
0: uh yeah she's a good she's my she's my girl we were so lucky to have to have each other so again thanks so much really fun talking to you
1: really fun talking to you sue you take care
0: good i wish you the best you too bye-bye Hey,
1: thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favorite ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.